I want to begin by highlighting the fact that in 1979, uh, there was an Australian country music legend by the name of Slim Dusty who graced us with what would become a very iconic Australian song. It's a song uh, that, in fact, when he died in 2003, our Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, kind of gave him a little bit of a sending off and said, we thank you particularly uh, for your contribution of giving us this song. And the song that he gave us was titled A Pub With No Beer. Uh, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but this is one of Slim Dusty's most famous works. Now, um, if you haven't heard it, the thrust of this song is that Slim is basically describing the displeasure that can come when a group of people rock up to a pub and they're expecting a nice cold beverage, only to discover that the pub's got no beer. And so the whole song, he's describing these different characters, you know, Billy the Blacksmith and someone else, and they all get quite disgruntled that this pub's got no beer. And It's quite an interesting song. He says, Oh, it's a lonesome away from your kindred at all. By the campfire at night, we'll hear the wild dingoes call. But there's nothing so lonesome, morbid or drear, than to stand in the bar of a pub with no beer. (laughs) This is the iconic song that he graced us with. And what he's getting at is that you can't really experience something truly if you strip it of its essential features, okay? And you, you and I could no doubt write some pretty similar books. We could talk about the, the zoo that had no animals, the library that had no books, or something really depressing and tragic, the pizza that had no cheese. We could write <laughs> some really similar songs. When you take away the essential ingredients of something, its necessary components... What you have left is usually far from desirable. And regrettably, there are voices that exist in the Christian world today that want to do the same thing with the local church. They want to strip the concept of proper Christian community. They want to strip it of its essential ingredients that the Bible prescribes for its flourishing. And what happens is is that people start to get a little bit suspicious. They get a bit suspicious around this idea of, well, what do you need a church building for? Why does there have to be paid pastoral staff? Why do we have to have worship services that are structured and ordered? Why do people rehearse the worship? Why do we need this thing called a sermon? Like, why is he preaching at me? Can't I just share the odd scripture from time to time? What we're seeing is is that people are trying to deconstruct organized Christianity and are suspect of all sorts of things, leadership, discipline, you name it. And their idea is basically... we. We all just need to be liberated from our traditionalism. We, we need to go and seek out a more organic experience and they become disenchanted with what's really supposed to be the biblical norm. And the result of such thinking, you can get one of two things. Number one, you can get this kind of weird, individualistic, lone ranger, churchless Christianity, right? Which really makes no sense at all. And it basically just says, oh, look, I've, I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. He's my personal saviour and I don't really need a church because I am the church. So that's one thing that can happen or you can get a form of Christian community that, well, it, it's kind of there but it's so diluted, it, it lacks any kind of gospel potency. When these are the ingredients that enable it to flourish, it really becomes the pub with no beer. Kevin DeYoung has written it this way, He said, there is a growing movement among self-proclaimed evangelicals and in the broader culture to get spirituality without religion, to find a relationship without rules and have God without the church. More and more people are looking 
for a decorpulated Christianity. Now, what does that word mean? Well, to decapitate means to cut off the head. Decorpulate would be to cut off the body. They want to be detached from the body of Christ. And so as a church, what we want to do here at the project is begin the year kind of on the front foot and say, right, let's spend the next four weeks looking at what the New Testament has to say about what proper Christian gathering should look like. And the the way we kind of went about this is we did an entire sweep of the New Testament looking for the phrase, one another. If you look up the phrase, one another, in the New Testament, let me tell you, you're going to run out of fingers and toes very quickly. The New Testament is rife with one another commands. Now, in four weeks, we, we certainly can't cover all of them, but what we've done, we've selected four texts that get at this idea of one anotherness in the New Testament. So, if you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Colossians 3, and I want to begin by reading verses 12 through 17. This is what Paul says to the Colossians. He says, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. So to give you a little bit of context to this passage, Paul is speaking to the church here in Colossae and he's concerned that there's actually been a few false teachers building up within the church who's trying to, they're trying to rob these Christians of a proper relationship with Jesus. They're, they're trying to pulling, pull them towards an alternative uh, spirituality. And what Paul does through all of chapter 2 is he's basically fighting off this false teaching that's presenting to the church. And then in coming to chapter 3, he kind of pulls up stumps on, on fighting off the heresy and he basically pulls out the wardrobe. And he says to the, the Christians there, he says, okay, the wardrobe's out, it's time to get dressed. And as you see, uh, as chapter 3 uh, progresses, Paul lists some things, there's some things you've got to put off, stuff attached to the old self, and then there's some things that you've got to put on. He's using clothing imagery to describe the Christian life. He's saying that because of the newness of life that you have in Christ Jesus, because of the cross work of Jesus, you need to live your life in a manner that testifies to that reality. He says there's some things you've got to take off and there's some clothing that you're going to have to remove. If you look up a bit earlier, if you've got your Bibles open, from verse uh, 5 onwards, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And the list of vices continues as you go from 5 through 11. But then what's really interesting is as he begins verse 12, he says, put on then. He's contrasting now the vices of the previous verses with the virtues. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And then after listing these virtues, he gives us our very first one another commandment of the series. He says, bear with 
one another. Now, now what does that mean, to, to bear with one another? We, we might hear that and kind of hear it with a little bit of a negative overtone, right? We, we no doubt heard Jesus use it with a negative overtone. How often did he say things like this? How much longer must I bear with this faith, faithless generation? Yeah, Jesus often had to bear with the people of Israel and his own disciples. It, it can carry something of a negative overtone, right? It's as if Paul's saying, oh, come, just put up with each other, would you? Like, just sort it out. Um, now, that's not quite what he's getting at. But having said that, there's a sense in which that's kind of part of it. I think Paul is actually getting really raw and honest with us here. He's being very real. He's saying that there's a sense in which, as the gathered church, as the people of God, we do have to learn to, positively speaking, learn how to tolerate one another. Now, this can be tricky, right? I love the honesty of my favorite author, D.A. Carson. <laughs> he says, churches have the proclivity of attracting a disproportionate number of really awkward people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Don. <laughs> and, I mean, let's be honest. If we've been around the church any period of time, I mean, we've probably experienced that to a degree. And if you haven't, hey, maybe you're the awkward one. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we are a little bit of a motley crew, aren't we? Now, I'm not talking about the band from the 1980s, but I'm saying that if you look amongst us, we are a bit of a diverse group. Some of us are teenagers. Others, well, we're a little bit further along than being a teenager. Some of us, we're born and bred Australian, and then others are foreigners. Some of us are arty, musical types. We prefer theatre and music, and then others, we're more sporty, and we're following so many sporting teams, people can't keep track of them. Some of us, we're, uh, we're petrol heads, others are tradies, entrepreneurs, students, mothers, fathers, single, divorced, married with kids, employed, unemployed, athletic, disabled, vegan, introvert, crossfitter, you name it, we've got it. <laughs> Welcome to the project. I mean, we are quite a diverse group. And the same was true for the, the church here in Colossae. Look at, uh, I think it's verse 11 there. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The church is a diverse group, it always has been. But then what regrettably tends to happen amidst all of our diversity, with all of our different backgrounds and all of our different lengths of time following Jesus, what we often fail to do is relate to one another the way we ought to. And what we see is a lot of relational tension tends to develop even within the local church. I mean, let's be honest, we've probably all heard things to the tune of, oh, did you, did you hear what she said about me? I mean, goodness, I expect better. She's on the welcome team, for goodness sake. I mean, how, how dare she say that of me? Well, you, know, you might say, oh, man, it's bad enough that they kind of do the whole seaweed thing in worship, but can they at least stay in key when they sing? Like, my goodness, how hard was worship to tolerate this morning? And then, oh, you know, then there's that, maybe there's that one awkward person that always wants to talk about the second coming of Christ and you've got to go, hi, how are you? If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably experienced some of these relational personality tensions that are just part of what happens when a bunch of sinners get together. And sadly, too often our response in these situations is rather than pressing into them, Often we play the victim, we complain, we retreat, and sometimes we just get up and leave. Now, don't get me wrong, I acknowledge that there are some church situations 
where it is time to abandon ship. I've been a part of churches where there is so much corruption from the pulpit, from the leadership, from the way things are managed. you just got to jump off. It is a sinking ship. And there are cases where people should abandon ship. But, but more often not, than not, I think sometimes we probably, we probably play the victim a little bit more than we should. If, if, we, if we took a good look inside, we might realize that there might be a little bit more mess under our own rug. This is what Paul is getting at. He's saying, hey, bear with one another. Don't, don't retreat from relational tension because it's going to be there. He says, push into it. Look what he says in verse 13. If one has a complaint against you, and it's really not if, but when, when one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's not, it's a simple point Paul's making here. He's saying, has has Jesus forgiven you for the treachery of your sin? Yeah. Okay, so given that he incarnated himself into history and forgave you for your sins, do you think you might be able to incarnate yourself into some of the relational tensions that develop in the church and see reconciliation take place? That's what he's getting at here. You see, the truth is when Paul lists all these virtues, they're not virtues in a vacuum. <laughs> what, what's remarkable about these virtues, it's, it's not so much what they are, but whom they're towards. They're towards your brother and sister in Christ. And the truth is, do you think you will ever learn these virtues if you retreat every time some sort of problem pops up? Like, do you think, honestly, do you think we will ever learn kindness if we're not around people that it's difficult to be kind with? I think that's where Jesus would, would push us towards. How are we going to learn how are we going to learn humility? we don't actually learn to submit to one another in the context of a local church. Something Ephesians 5 commands of us. And then, what about something like patience? Like what, how else are we going to develop biblical patience if we're not interacting with our brothers and sisters in such a way that we're going to have to be patient with them from time to time? Maybe even patient with a particular sin that they just seem to be taking forever to conquer. We have to be patient with one another and we only learn that in the context of the local church. There's a really um, pointy question that Kevin DeYoung asked in a book I read this week. He says, What if the difficulty with the church was God's means of sanctifying you and the church? Uh, what, what, if, what if some of the relational tension that we all experience was actually there to conform you into the image of Christ? Have we ever thought about it that way? You see, um, sometimes this is where I get a little bit nervous by people who have perhaps retreated from the local church and they'll say things like this, oh, well, me and my, me and my handful of Christian mates, we, well, we hang out, you know, we, we go and play golf together once a week and from time to time we actually pray. That's, that's my church, that's, that's fellowship. You know, when, when two or more are gathered together, that's, you know, this is my church. And it's like, well, well really, who are you, who are you bearing with in those moments, you're not, you're not really bearing with anyone. It's, it's really easy to be kind to your best mate. It's much harder to do it in a diverse group like the local church. In a context like that, are, are you submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, no, there's no, there's no place for submission there. It's, it's all too easy. And then sometimes I like to get really cheeky and be like, oh, really? If that's your church, how does church discipline work here? Is that what the golf clubs are for? Like, uh, <laughs> that is not what the Bible describes as genuine Christian community. You see, 
Christian community should consist of people who have put off the old self. There's some things that they've taken off. They've died to themselves and they're eager to come and get involved with a bunch of ragamuffins who love Jesus as well. That's what putting on the new self looks like. I love these words by uh, Charles Spurgeon. He says, If you wait for a perfect church, you must wait until you get to heaven. And even if you could find a perfect assembly on earth, I am sure they would not admit you to their fellowship, for you are not perfect yourself. Thank you, Mr. Spurgeon. So just for a moment, like, honestly, I want us to do this. Ten seconds. Just look around the room. Look over your left and right shoulder. Road behind you. Who, who put this Motley crew together, right? I mean, we're a diverse bunch. But what you just looked at is the bride of Christ, which Paul describes as holy, chosen, and beloved. Christ died for her. I love what Doug Wilson says. He, uh, he says, if you could sum up the Bible story, slay the dragon, get the girl. That's the whole message of the Bible in six words. <laughs> yeah, she's not perfect. That comes later. But in the meantime, this is what you've, you're called to be a part of. This is what putting on the new self looks like. He says it there in verse 15. You were called in one body. If you hear nothing else today, just hear verse 15. You were called in one body. Douglas Moose said that the gospel is inescapably individual and inescapably corporate. So Paul says, all right, well, let's get dressed. Let's put on these virtues. And as the, as the kind of overcoat, the, the parka that you would wear as sort of the final layer of clothing, like when you go to the snow, the, the overcoat of all of this, he says, put on love. Above all these, put on love, which, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus said to us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And here's, here's kind of the evangelistic kicker. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, so we're, we're in biblical community. We're, we're gathering together. We're bearing with one another. Paul says that when we do that, the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. But now what? We've got a bunch of Christians in a room. What do we do next? listen to what Paul says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let me ask you this morning, what's your understanding of the role of teaching in the local church? Well, of course, Bible, the Bible first and foremost would point you to the office of pastor, you know, and, and first and foremost, if you just, the way the Bible describes a, a pastor, they are first and foremost teachers. In, in Ephesians 4, when it talks about all the different ministry leaders that are gifted to the church, it talks about the shepherds and teachers. That's how it comes out in the English, shepherds and teachers. But if you look at it in the Greek, it's actually one word. It actually translates shepherd teacher. Um, you could say that Peter Sondergeld is a shepherd teacher. That is his function. His pastoral role is bound up with teaching God's Word to God's people. So this function of, of, of teaching God's Word to God's people is one of the most important functions as a pastor. You know, Jesus said to Peter, hey, feed my sheep. And in fact, James warns us that not many people should become teachers because those who do will be judged more strictly. 
yay me. This is not a light issue when it comes to teaching. But although teaching is primarily a kind of from the front pulpit, from the pastor's ministry, that teaching ministry is actually biblically designed to extend to the congregation. Now, that's more what Paul's getting at here. He's not so much talking about pastoral teaching, but he's talking about what the congregation does. Do you know that as a Christian, part of your maturity, and I I emphasize the word part, is to grow up in our knowledge of the truth. Now, I get it. Christian maturity and biblical knowledge are not always the same thing. I know a lot of people who know a lot of Bible who aren't that mature, right? Christian maturity is first and foremost bound up, not so much with how much you know, but how much you've died to yourself. That's what mature Christianity looks like. You want to spot a mature Christian? I like to say, look for a dead man walking. They're so dead to themselves. They've died daily, over and over again. There's so little left of them and you just see Jesus. You're in their presence for five minutes and you go, man, I need an altar call. This person's amazing. You, you know when you're in the presence of a mature Christian. If, if you ever get to meet uh, Alice's uncle Simon, you'll know what I'm talking about. He's a, he is a self-confessed, simple tradie. He's a chippy. He says he's never read a book in his life except the Bible. He reads it every morning. He prays more diligently than anyone. And man, you spend a couple of minutes with him, you're like, man, that is a man of God right there. He is mature. But having said all that, there is a sense in which as we grow up as Christians, we ought to simultaneously be growing up in our knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a very um, kind of confronting scripture that comes at us here in Hebrews chapter 5. And I just want us to read it for a moment. It's a bit of a it's a little bit of a health checkup. So it, it's weighty, but let's go there together. Hebrews 5.11 through to 6.3. He says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's not saying you ought to be pastors. He's just saying you ought to have learned how to teach. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now that's heavy, right? But just as a kind of a gentle food for thought, start 2020 off health check, how are we doing with that? Are we growing up in our knowledge of the truth? Like the, as, a, as a kind of case study, if a new Christian came up to you and said, I, I need a hand learning that what the Bible has to say about some of the things listed here, about the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment, all the things that seem to surround the gospel here in this passage, how, how would we go with that? Now, what Paul is not saying that as we teach and admonish one another that we all have to grow to such a degree that we can all write commentaries on the book of Revelation. That's not what he's getting at here. He's just saying, can you articulate the gospel basics? Are you growing up in your knowledge of the truth? 
One of the things that really warmed my heart uh, in the time that I've been here was watching seven-year-old Will Calabria stand on the stage behind us in November last year and boldly look us all in the eye and say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm like, yeah, Will, yeah, he did, come on. That is an age-appropriate, beautiful message of the gospel, and we baptized him that day. Now, young Will will never, ever, ever graduate from the truth of that message. That is something he will be pondering into eternity, the mystery and gravity of the cross. But as Will gets a little bit older, I suspect that Will will probably nuance his understanding of the gospel and and widen it a little bit more. He'll begin to say things like, Jesus, he is my great high priest of a much better covenant. He'll, He'll say that Jesus is the propitiation for my sins. He'll begin to say these things where maybe even as an old man, in the final years of his life, he'll go, I'm awaiting the eternal weight of glory prepared for me before the foundation of the world. I'm going to live in resurrection, glory, existence with my Savior for eternity. Will's going to grow up in his knowledge of the truth. He doesn't graduate from the gospel, but he, he understands it more. You see, Christian community is first and foremost, or among other things at least, it's an open Bible phenomenon. Christian community is a learning environment. And now, it's not, it's not just that we have the right doctrine for doctrine's sake. It's, it's so that as we grow in our knowledge of the gospel, as we understand what Christ has done for us on our behalf, it warms our heart to the truth of the gospel. It stirs our affections towards Christ. And it actually helps us navigate some of the things that we wrestle with. And again, this is where I get a little bit nervous about Christianity that just wants to hang out and call it community. Sure, let's, let's hang out. Let's do board game nights. Let's play cricket. Let's do ultimate frisbee. Um, I got a call last night from uh, the birding family asking me how to make a salad. Let's, let's do community in the most authentic, real ways, but let's be a Bible-open people. Let's grow up in our knowledge of the truth. I love what Hebrews 10 says. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what's fascinating about what Paul does next is he kind of, or at least it seems like, he changes topic. He's gone from this teach and admonish one another bit to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's like, Paul, how do you put that together in a smoothie? That's a bit odd. How do you get those ingredients together? And it looks like he's changing topic, but the truth is he's actually linking those two things. Paul is saying that one of the chief ways that the Christian community teaches and admonishes one another is by singing. Do you know that in the early church, first century church, not everyone could read. So it's not like everyone could pick up their Bible. I mean, the manuscripts are a little bit all over the place at that point. So how are you going to get the truth of the gospel into people's hearts? Well, you actually start developing songs that share the richness of the gospel. And it's the rhythm of song that actually helped people remember what Jesus had done for them. Now, some of you might go, that's a little bit weird. It's actually not. We actually learn through song all the time. It's a very powerful teaching tool. Let me prove it to you. This is a song that I learnt back in 1997. You ready for it? One six is six, two six is a twelve, 
Three sixes are eighteen, four sixes are twenty-four, five sixes are thirty-six, sixes are thirty-six, seven sixes are forty-two, and eight sixes are forty-eight, nine sixes are fifty-four, and ten sixes are sixty, eleven sixes are sixty-six, and twelve sixes are seventy-two. Boom, boom. I learnt that twenty-three years ago. I still use it. If I'm trying to figure out some sort of multiplication thing, I go back to my year three class, thank you, Wendy Hewitt. Singing is a powerful tool to get across gospel truth. And so we should be greatly indebted to our worship team here at the project. Now, one of the, um, in some sense, tragedies of some contemporary worship is that it suffers what John MacArthur likes to call the 7-11 problem. It's the same seven words 11 times over. There's not always a lot of rich gospel theological truth happening in some of our contemporary worship. And that's why a lot of people do, and to be honest, I'm leaning that way myself, resort back to some of the old hymns that were very, very rich in their imagery of the cross. Um, now, there was a little bit of a, a controversial case that came out about this a couple of years ago. I'm not sure how familiar you were with it, but Hillsong produced a, a song, which I'm just going to start out by saying... I listen to this song regularly. I think rightly understood. You can sing it to the glory of God. I particularly recommend the cover of it by Shane and Shane. It's a good song, rightly understood. It's a song that's called What a Beautiful Name. Now, there's a line in that song that was causing a few hiccups around the Christian world. There's a line that says this, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. And some people, especially in your kind of Reformed Presbyterian churches, were going, what kind of sissy Jesus are we singing to now? Like, you didn't want heaven without us? Like, it could potentially make Jesus look like he's kind of sitting over in a fetal position in heaven going, I'm so lonely here. I, I need people to come and keep me company. He didn't want heaven without us. And so what we sing matters. Now, you can... Uh, choose to reject or redeem that song however you like. I choose to redeem it myself, but it at least presented some interesting discussion for the church about what we actually sing when we are worshipping. You see, whether we realise it or not, when we worship together as a congregation, there is a teaching function going on. But for me, I'm probably more of a hymn guy, if I'm honest. You know, I, I love, it often brings me to tears, when you hear lines like this, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now we're singing. You are reminding me of the gospel. Now we're singing. Now we are teaching. Now, what, what's the result of doing all of this? We've spoken about bearing with one another. We've spoken about teaching and admonishing one another. What, what are we doing with all this knowledge? Are we just going to sit in the corner of the ivory tower and develop a kind of theological snobbery as we sip our tea? Is that what we're going for here? Of course not. Now look what verse 16 says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now when he says word of Christ there, what he's talking about is the gospel. We need to teach and admonish each other towards greater gospel clarity. And then the hope is, is that as we grow in our clarity, clarity of the gospel in our minds, it will find its way into our hearts and it will manifest in the way that we live. You know, for some of us who perhaps are parents, as you understand 
the grace that God has had towards you in Jesus Christ, maybe instead of pulling out the rod in some scenarios, you will move towards your children and show them grace. Only the gospel can transform you in such a way to do that. Maybe for some of us, like me, you're learning how to be married. And as I, as I consider the length of what Jesus did on the cross, how he came down and purchased the redemption of his bride, it, that's a paradigm shift for the way I view Alice now. The gospel informs how I do marriage. If some of us are, are struggling with sin, we, we need gospel clarity to remind you that, hey, you're not finished yet. You're a work in progress. You're what Luther called simultaneously a saint and sinner. You're a work in progress. You have been declared righteous, justified. You are going to the dance. It's a done deal. You are heaven bound if you are in Christ. And one day you will be in perfect, glorious eternity, free from all stain of sin. And in the middle of that, you get to hang on to those two promises as fuel as you learn to walk in holiness. You see how gospel clarity fuels our living. It's something that means it's meant to be rich in our hearts. It's only the transformative power of the gospel in our lives that's going to bring about the kind of change that we all desperately want. And the gospel is something that so often we, we almost get a bit too familiar with. We, we find ourselves over the years just kind of tipping our hat to the gospel. But really what Paul's getting at here is it's something you have to be immersed in. He says, let it dwell in you richly. I love uh, Matthew Henry's words. He said, the gospel is the word of Christ, which has come to us. But that is not enough. It must dwell in us or keep house, not as a servant in a family who is under another's control, but as a master who has a right to prescribe to and direct all under his roof. Does the gospel operate like that in your life? Are we teaching and admonishing one another with the gospel so that that's the case? One of the band come and join me been reading a book this week by Ray Ortland, which is just called The Gospel. Uh, great book. I first heard some of this content, uh, some leadership training I was doing at my previous church on the coast. But one of the things that Ray Ortland talks about is that as a church, we need to have gospel doctrine. We need to understand exactly what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross and how that intersects with our lives. But then that's not enough. We have to move from gospel doctrine and develop within our church a gospel culture. The, the gospel, the rubber has to hit the road when it comes to developing a gospel culture. And here's a couple of the key ingredients that I want us to think about that um, Ray Altman put together as we think about this idea of bearing with one another and teaching and admonishing one another. He says we need three things. We need the gospel, we need safety, and we need time. We need the gospel. We need multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to another. Let's teach and admonish one another. But then in conjunction with that, we need safety. We need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so that they can admit their problems honestly. We want to be open and honest about how we're doing. And then we need time. We're all a work in progress. We need enough time to rethink our lives at a deep level because we're complex and changing is not easy. So Project Church, may we bear with one another. And as we do that, may we teach and admonish one another. May we be an open Bible people. And as we grow in our knowledge of the truth, my prayer is that the gospel would dwell more richly in our hearts. 
and that it would intersect more areas of our lives. And overall, my prayer is that for all of us, we would experience the kind of biblical community that Jesus prescribes for us. Let's pray.